Yeah, I appreciate that. And uh, I honestly, I just want to say up front that I was probably the most excited for Kevin McKernan's presentation myself. So um, a little ironic that it worked out this way, um, but uh, I'm happy to do an encore and um, this time I'll be a little bit more refined, hopefully. So let me share my screen here. Much appreciated. And I, I do have it triple recording right now so that there is no issue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and shout out to the moderators for also helping you achieve that as well. Uh, nobody loves, nobody talks about the logistics. Nobody ever talks about the people in the back end uh, uh, who are making all of this work invisibly, but that's how you know it's working well. Oh yeah, shout out to Marty and Fumador uh, for helping us on the hosting. And uh, in case you guys haven't noticed, we've had a slew of technical issues this morning. Uh, on the back end. So thank you both to Fumador and Marty for, for helping us out today. So without further ado, the title of this presentation is Cannabis Pest Update 2021, The Ever Swarm. And I chose this name because it's a very descriptive name. Uh, you will always be dealing with pests essentially because pest is a human concept. And uh, for those who don't know, uh, I'm an IPM specialist and I've been working in the cannabis space for 11 years now. Uh, to go forward, like it's Cannabis Pest Update 2021, the Everswarm Holistic Identification and Countermeasures from Gene to Gram. So I'm going to articulate certain aspects of IPM, some reasons why uh, holistic processes are so important, and uh, some various common and also uncommon pests that I've encountered personally or that I've seen demonstrated in uh, literature on the subject. And I uh, heartily encourage people to do more of this, to look into research reports about uh, pest ecology, um, but ecology in general, and also the works of, of in, in cannabis um, as that research sort of um, quantifies and it gets greater and greater. You can find my information about this in three major sources, my Instagram account and Twitter accounts, which are both at SyncAngel and also my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, which is also the name of my consulting group, Sentinel Consulting. Oh, <laughs> that was the end. Starting with the end, all ends are beginnings, right? So, what <laughs> morbid maybe, but uh, very true. So, I want to start off by talking about what a pest is. Uh, obviously, pests, like other things, are human concepts, but uh, more accurately here, um, they're important in agriculture because pest is not really a designator that we use in ecology. Um, and we've had a lot of really great presenters um, talking about ecology. In fact, a couple of these people uh, were actual ecologists, which was really refreshing and cool to see. But um, it bears repeating. Uh, these organisms existed on cannabis and other plants uh, way before humans tried to cultivate any of these plants. Uh, and they were not pests, they were just parts of the environment. And uh, since we're still dealing with natural things, in this case, uh, plants and the soil microbiome and things like this, uh, we have to sort of acknowledge that um, the designator is a little bit arbitrary and things that are beneficial in one capacity, can be detrimental in another capacity, even things we typically associate with being good or, or bad, generally speaking. And so because of that, identification and recognition is a uh, key for clarifying these relationships. And some of them are, are mighty complex. 
and it might not be available for contextualization from a cultivation perspective in the field when you're assessing. I also want to, to set up the point for those who aren't kind of uh, sort of aware of this perspective, um, but plant symbioses in general, uh, by which I mean mutualisms and parasitisms on a spectrum, uh, they exist. And organisms like the various microbes we like to inoculate in our soils or in our plants as endophytes, uh, they can also be uh, beneficial or detrimental, or they can kind of come with advantages and disadvantages. All of these relationships, particularly the intimate ones like mycorrhizae, but also ones that are a little bit less intimate that exist in the rhizosphere, um, they have a cost associated with their establishment of some kind. Sometimes it's an indirect cost that isn't really paid directly by resources of the plant. In other cases, this is exactly what's happening. And at a genetic molecular level, plants are having to filter through these microbes, having to filter through these interactions with herbivores and uh, fungal parasites and viruses. And they have to, they have to basically manage stressors in addition to abiotic stressors like temperature, humidity, um, hydration, things like this. So I just want to say it up front that these symbioses are not equal in cost nor effect. And I think that that is a, a much better way to sort of look at a holistic cultivation space. And as your cultivation space, as your plants age, as your microbial consortia changes, um, so too uh, is the entire dynamic of your cultivation going to change as well? And uh, we had a, a few other presenters who made some really great points uh, in various uh, in various presentations uh, to this end. And I really appreciate seeing this uh, corroborated. For additional research on the topic, I provided a few examples here in this slide. One is uh, an example of what's called mycorrhiza-induced susceptibility. So this was actually uh, a susceptibility to a plant virus that was facilitated by mycorrhizae um, rather, you know, even though the plant was getting great benefits from typical mycorrhizal interactions, uh, it, it did have this other sort of effect. And as we learn more about the microbiome, we start to see that there's like, there's checks and balances. There's uh, advantages and disadvantages to all of these uh, interactions, like I keep trying to say. Uh, also biodiverse microbiome dynamics. So uh, an example where a mycorrhizal organism was able to mine uh, nitrogen, I believe it was, from chitin. Um, even though it had all the enzymes and things that needed to actually achieve this, uh, it was not utilizing them to do this. And it actually required a bacteria and a protist to um, make the interaction or make the, the mining of this nitrogen, the absorption of these nutrients. Uh, more economically feasible, for lack of a better term, for the mycorrhiza and so for the plant as well. So these interactions are not, you know, if you put them in, an, in a vacuum, uh, they can have benefits, but when they're put together in a real life situation, there are, there are maybe greater benefits that can be achieved through cooperation, but also there can be the detriments that occur uh, as things change. Uh, and of course, if you've never heard of the plant soil feedback I very much recommend people do so and, and, and take, it, take some time to check it out on Google or some such. So pest.biodiversity. This comes from a report called Hemp Pest Spectrum and Potential Relationship 
between Helicoverpazia, which is a budworm moth, infestation, and hemp production in the United States in the face of climate change. It's really great. It just came out last month, uh, actually, and I took a look at it, and it was a really great example of a bunch of different uh, pests and neutral organisms and, and sort of traditionally beneficial organisms that they found in hemp fields. Uh, certainly not exhaustive, but uh, there's a lot of great examples here. Grasshoppers, thrips, aphids that a lot of people are already familiar with, spittlebugs. Um, I wanted to emphasize the fire ants uh, that, that they found here because fire ants are, and other kinds of ants that girdle the stem of cannabis are becoming uh, more common in my experience. And they're not really traditionally thought of as like an agricultural pest, I feel like, and that is uh, not entirely accurate. And as cannabis cultivation grows, so too will these sort of uh, pest interactions that maybe used to be considered to be edge cases, but might actually be found to be quite a bit more common. Um, obviously, the Helica verbazia, the corn earworm, is super prevalent. A lot of people dealing with it in cannabis space currently. Stink bugs, seed bugs, various scarab beetles that uh, feed on leaves and roots as larvae. Um, and of course, the broad mites, two-spot spider mite, and uh, the duration hemp borer at the very end here are all pretty common pests uh, in cannabis. But there's also beneficial organisms, right? So the anthocorids or the minute pirate bugs that people are, are familiar with as a commercial agent. Um, those exist in nature. You've also got lady beetles too. Um, the convergent lady beetle, Hippodamia convergens, is uh, one that I, um, that I like to facilitate in North America when, when possible. Um, but the Harmonia axiridis species at the very end of this, a uh, little diagram in the middle. Um, I am very much against using, uh, and I'm not sure, I mean, these are what they recorded, of course, but um, this uh, harlequin lady beetle, as it's called, is incredibly invasive and very damaging to native lady beetle species. They will outcompete them. They will eat, eat the larvae. Uh, they will also infect other adults with a parasite, and it's not, it's not great. And uh, they also bite humans for that matter. So they're just not something you wanna be facilitating so much. So if you do find them, and there are many different phenotypes of them that you have to learn if you wanna recognize them, um, you know, just be aware of the, the complexity. Not every lady beetle is good, certainly. There's also various parasitoid wasps like ichneumids and uh, braconid wasps. Um, carabid tiger beetles are great for caterpillars. Um, uh, green lacewings, of course, many people are aware of, assassin bugs, tachnid flies, which are parasitic flies uh, that kind of have an infamous reputation for monarch caterpillar enthusiasts and other caterpillar growers, um, but they are also an important parasite. Um, and uh, wasps, for that matter, wasps are incredibly great. I like to call them the attack helicopters of the sky because they love to go after, uh, I guess it's a military joke, a caterpillar um, targets, so, so caterpillars. Um, and they uh, are really great at seeking them out and killing them and harvesting them and, and feeding them to their grubs. So uh, if you can bear it, if you're not allergic to them, uh, they're a great uh, sort of counterbalance to caterpillars in the field. Uh, if you want to also attract them, uh, there are a bunch of different banker plants that are available that people can use. I 
really like to facilitate native species when possible, not only from a sustainability and ecological restoration perspective, but also because those or organisms in the nature in your natural sphere are going to be more adapted to those organisms, at least the ones that are native to your area. There are certainly naturalized biocontrols that have kind of um, established in places, but are actually exotic. Uh, I have the most experience and most um, success with uh, pepper baker plants, actually, specifically ornamental peppers. And I have a video on my channel that talks about that. I also have um, experience with using a lot of different plants with like small florets for parasitoid wasps, which are very small. And um, so like a listum is a good one. Uh, I believe um, the presenter beforehand was talking about uh, lavender. For example, um, so a lot of like the mint family with those small florets are pretty common and popular for like native bees and things like this. Flies for that matter are also very common pollinators, but they get a bad rap. And um, the long-legged flies, the Delicopodidae over here, uh, I'm positive that a lot of people have actually seen them in their life, but they've never really known what they do um, and maybe even confused them for a pest fly. But in fact, they're a really super competent predator. Um, so yeah, just so knowing these names, and uh, even if they've got these Latinate names that don't really mean a whole lot to you, uh, looking them up, uh, taking a look at their life cycle, what they feed on, uh, so you can recognize them in your space is like the first step, perhaps even step zero to uh, understanding your area in a local, um, ecologically conscientious way. And if you're interested in making that um, that environment more, um, you know, if you're if you're important, if you're interested in restoring it, if you're interested in taking care of it, then that's very important to, to understand. And uh, here I have an example of a hoverfly larvae um, that I found on a hawksbeard plant, I believe. Uh, you can see that the larvae kind of look a lot like caterpillars. Sorry, that volume is probably a little high, but um, yeah, so, so some of these biocontrols, they actually look a lot like uh, other, other organisms that you want to kill. And so if you don't know them, if you don't get to know what they look like, even in a general way, you risk uh, killing things that would actually help you. And it really crushes me when people uh, end up doing that. So I wanted to just touch on that a little bit. Hoverflies of the Syrophid family are pretty common, and especially in North America, um, they offer up some aphid um, uh, killing effect. Yeah, so here's a, here's a good example of it moving. Very much moves undulating like a caterpillar. Um, but if you take a, a good look at them, you can kind of tell the difference between them and a caterpillar that you might want to get rid of. And neutral organisms. Uh, up front, the two organisms that I'm asked about the most in... Um, uh, especially from home growers and people who reach out to me through direct messages on social media, uh, I am most asked about mold mites and springtails. And um, people will spend tons of money trying to get rid of these mold mites and predatory mites even in the soil. And because they have never grown before in a lot of cases, or this might be their first foray into like gardening even, they see these, uh, these, these bugs and they automatically assume that they're gonna be harmful to the plant. And um, that is not necessarily the case. Another good reason 
to identify these and recognize what they are is because if you're sort of um, uselessly trying to kill them, for one thing, a lot of these are ubiquitous in the environment. So they're just going to keep coming in and not hurting your plant. Uh, you save a lot of money and you save a lot of stress and anxiety by recognizing the organisms that aren't even really a problem in the first place. So yeah, so springtails and mold mites are really common and soil predatory mites are also very common, arbitrated mites as well. But over here we even have um, crane flies, you know, certain kinds of crickets, longhorn beetles, um, flower beetles, uh, certain, certain butterflies, certainly their larval caterpillar forms are not always going to eat your plants. There are tons of generalists out there and you're never going to know every single one. Um, and even in some cases you might come across something that you see in a research report that says that it's neutral, but it in fact is not. And uh, here's where I get to make a little bit of a point here at the, at the end, leaf mining flies. Uh, I would not call those uh, necessarily major pests, but they're certainly not neutral. Um, so why train in pest ecology? Well, there's a few reasons for this. Uh, the first one is kind of what I already articulated. If you know their strengths, and you know their vulnerabilities in their life cycle, then you know how to exploit those natural problems or vulnerabilities that they have. Those weaknesses exist. Nothing is perfect. And knowing that allows you to do better, essentially. Uh, it also allows you to sort of confirm or analyze that claims that people make. Uh, I don't expect anyone to take what I say um, at face value, or at least I really hope that you're not. I hope that people corroborate what I'm saying because I can make a mistake. Any one of these presenters could make a mistake or fumble some sort of a sentence. Um, and that just happens sometimes. And I know I'm certainly not infallible and I've made mistakes in the past or, and even research comes out uh, saying one thing and then later on we learn that actually there's a difference or there's maybe a more, um, you know, sort of discriminating point to be made about some subject or another. So again, I do not take what people say at face value. Uh, look for information, look for data, don't roll over without it. And um, if you do understand how the sort of biological processes happen, the basic physiology of how plants grow, for example, is really useful, uh, cell biology and things like that, not even the super technical stuff, uh, can really do a lot to sort of shield you and safeguard you from uh, things that maybe aren't going to be very useful for your particular context. And I'm an advocate for white space training. I do um, offer training in IPM uh, for those who are interested in a commercial setting. White space training is the concept of training people in downtime, essentially, and uh, learning or teaching IPM to um, staff is incredibly beneficial and cross-training is also really beneficial to that end. Uh, but if you're also growing in a home growth situation and you're watching this uh, conference, then you're, congratulations, already doing white space training, good for you. Um, so if you are interested in that kind of a thing, I have tons of free content on my YouTube channel, Zenthanol, to, um, uh, to sort of enrich that. I have two examples here. So on the left, we have this uh, Agrinova um, uh, advertisement that I became aware of. I think Instagram actually made this for me uh, or, or uh, put this in my face. I don't think I followed these people, but um, it says El Acaro Tetranakis or to say es una plaga importante en varios cultivos a nivel mundial. So it's a it's a important pest in various uh, places and various levels in the world. 
Uh, but unfortunately, this is not a spider mite. This is actually a whirligig mite, which is a beneficial predator. But because you might look up red spider mite or something on Google, don't trust the first picture that you come across because it might be this. And you might be in charge of marketing and you might have totally misrepresented your company by doing so. Um, so this is just something to keep in mind. It's a good example. Another one is this, um, this Congen water uh, statement here. Not so much a criticism of efficacy in a pest setting as much as it is the statement, the, sentence, the second sentence here about molecular hydrogen uh, acting as an efficient antioxidant that diffuses rapidly across cell membranes and can reduce free radicals suppressing oxidative stress. Well, um, I certainly hope that that's not the case necessarily, because for one, uh, water is controlled through aquaporin um, transport in cells, and homeostasis is incredibly important. Uh, diffusion also happens, but if you know anything about cell biology and, and water diffusion, you know that that's usually a slow process. If it happens very quickly, um, it can cause a lot of problems. And and if it's an oxidate, if it's an antioxidant, now we typically think of those as being good, and there's a lot of benefits to reducing oxidative stress. But um, as you can see in these two research reports that I've cited, uh, if you take a look at them, they talk about how immune signaling in plant uh, cells and also our own cells, for that matter, is um, is a process that is mediated through oxidative um, interactions. So oxidants and antioxidants and the fine-tuned production of them in, in the cell leads to immune priming. And if you upset that process, then you can have uh, problems and you can upset that priming and you can essentially weaken the immune system or create an antagonistic effect through crosstalk. So uh, just because something is an antioxidant doesn't necessarily make it good for that matter. So um, certainly there is no such thing as a panacea, is my point. Pest pressure in does increase. So again, from the report from before, um, they brought up this example that uh, just from the areas where they reported or where they were able to gather information, uh, in between 2015 and 2018, they saw a 1,200% increase in greenhouse square footage. And um, I'm sure that's much larger than that when we consider people who are not reporting, people who are not part of the groups that they were tracking, and certainly just residential growers for that matter. Um, so as cannabis starts becoming even more expansive than it already was in human history, um, we will see a lot more uh, pests we'll see a lot more pest interactions and we'll probably see more uh, examples of what is not documented yet. And I have a few examples here in the presentation of pests that don't typically get a lot of um, screen time. So uh, I would really highly encourage people to take a look at the pests that I mentioned here in the presentation, um, especially if you're a new grower or if you haven't dealt with these pests, you should have a plan for them before they become an issue for you. Um, be a pest today, past tomorrow sort of situation. I'm gonna go over some of these, not all of them here, but many of them. Um, actually, actually I do go over all of them here. Yeah, <laughs> I don't do it for the microbes later on, but uh, we have the budworm moth, the hemp russet mite, the Western flower thrips, the cannabis aphid, rice root aphid, two spot spider mite, and silver leaf white fly. And if you have more information that you're interested in, I did write a chapter in a book called Biopesticides in Organic Farming, Recent Advances. And uh, I do go over several of these organisms and uh, how to control them and treat them.
So the leaf miner fly. So unlike what the report said earlier, I believe that this is actually a pest. Uh, certainly you can see it mining the leaves here in this picture, uh, but I wouldn't call it threat high. It's more of a low threat, sort of low presence pest in my experience in cannabis. This might change in the future, uh, but certainly I, don't, I wouldn't call it a major pest. And um, there are a few ways you can get rid of it. I actually cut my teeth in agriculture on the leaf miner fly. And um, one of the most common biocontrols for the leaf miner fly are diglyphus or decnusa biocontrols, which are both parasitoid wasps that go after the larva or the puparia when it, um, when it finishes being a larva and enters that stage. And they're kind of expensive to be honest, but they do work really well. And in some cases, they have actually naturalized in certain populations. Um, they're a lot more common, the leaf miner at least is, in uh, ornamental crops quite a bit, uh, and also certain vegetable crops like uh, uh, coal crops and things like that. So if you are growing cannabis in an agricultural space that grows a lot of these sorts of plants that are susceptible to leaf miner, then uh, it's much more likely that you're going to be exposed to it. And uh, yeah, this is what the little diglyphus wasp looks like here. So termites are another uh, big group. I, um, I don't know for sure if this is a Formosan termite, but the reason why I think that it may be, and I wanted to talk about them here, is because these two videos that I have here, among others that I've, that I've either gathered myself through uh, client work or having people send them to me uh, through direct messages, uh, the Formosan termites are really common in the case that they like to go after living wood instead of just dead wood. So that's a, a really big sort of unique thing that not a lot of termites do. It also makes them a massive problem. And uh, like uh, Dr. Nanyo Su and Dr. Rudolf uh, H. Schifferman, or Schifferon, uh, talk about in uh, the University of Florida IFAS, they say that uh, in an article once established for most of the subterranean termite has never been eradicated from an area, by which I think they mean a region. Uh, certainly, I think there are ways to kill it through using noxious compounds and things that you would use to treat termites. But honestly, um, not something you would use in cannabis, of course. So uh, as you can see here, these are examples of termites feeding on the still living green matter um, of cannabis. It doesn't get documented a whole lot. And I think it's really important that more people are aware of this um, since we kind of lack a bit of an infrastructural support in research. That is changing now. Um, and there are many great entomologists and other folk who are um, accomplishing this task, but it doesn't get talked about often enough. And so here I am trying to put it in as many faces as possible. You know, these are pests that you have to deal with and that you wanna have a, a treatment or a plan for in this case, mainly a preventative one. So another example is the two-spot spider mite. Many people are familiar with it. Um, it is often called the red two-spot spider mite, but that is sort of a misnomer. Here you can see that uh, the female on the left is uh, rather green colored. And the two spots are actually cica, intestinal pouches in the, in in the insect, in the mite. Um, so you're not always gonna see these two spots, especially if they go into diapause, because when they do, 
certain groups, certain populations will produce sort of a red carotenoid um, uh, pigment. And um, that's where the red comes from, but not all, all ones do this. So they can come in colors like yellow, green, pink, orange, red, it really depends. Uh, so you can't always tell simply by that visual color indicator. They feed on tons of different plants and we'll get into some of the ways that they do that because it's a great model for how other organisms are able to uh, suppress or um, mitigate immune responses and plant defenses. Uh, biocontrols, however, uh, I'm a big fan of Persimilis, but you also can use Californicus or the predatory lady beetle Sothoris punctillum, as well as the predatory midge Feltiella acarasuga, which as a midge, it can fly around and find populations of spider mites. I feel like they do a lot better in fields, whereas in whereas in generally, I feel like Persimilis is kind of the the king of spider mite control, uh, but that's kind of just my personal opinion. All of these have use cases, and uh, I don't think it's proper to really say that one is totally perfectly better than the other in all cases, because it, it's not the case, right? Uh, certainly not for most things. So, right, so how do these insects and mites and other arthropods feed on plants? Why are they able to feed on a healthy plant? You do all that you can as a cultivator to keep a plant healthy and uh, primed for defense, but yet organisms are able to feed on it. And the reason why they're able to do it is because they suppress the immune system. Plants rely on something called pattern-triggered immunity to recognize structures and molecules that are kind of associated with these pests. So not only are they produced by pests, but they're also produced by like fungal endophytes, for example, um, and also other uh, arthropods that might be interacting with or creating waste or something that has some of these molecules. The plant will detect them regardless, which is why things like chitin products and that kind of a thing are so commonly used because you're exploiting the immune priming um, system of the plant. And when you prime that immune system, uh, it, it causes a hormonal change in the cells and produce, and there's various pathways locally, but also more broadly that uh, respond to this reception. So when that happens, uh, it primes the immune system and certain, certain times resources and other things are um, sort of, uh, I guess you could say they're, they're taken and used for the defense priming uh, which can happen a, a bunch of different ways, depends on the plant, depends on the type of response, depends on, in fact, even things like your microbiome, but also uh, its history of, um, of reception. So like if it came across a similar kind of response in the past in its life, then that actually will change how the plant responds in the future. And a lot of times um, having a response that's in the same feeding guild. So like in this case, an organism that's like poking its stylet into the plant and sucking up juices, um, that will have, that will prime a, the same response and sometimes even stronger in the future. In other times, however, you'll get the same kind of response and it actually has a weaker response uh, from the same kind of stimulus. So it can be a little bit capricious and we're still learning how these dynamics happen. But these organisms have ways to defend themselves. The way that they do this most um, commonly uh, is they have these things called effectors. 
effectors will basically bind with the PTIs or they'll bind with other sorts of receptors and they'll essentially uh, cloak them or keep them from being able to uh, receive these, these, um, these signals. And when that happens, that allows um, other, it basically doesn't prime the immune system and it allows the organism to feed uh, without being perturbed too much. And certain phenotypes of pests are way more adapted to certain plants um, than others. And in the case of the spider mite, it's a super generalist. And a lot of generalists have a pretty robust way of tackling uh, sort of conserved immune responses across other kinds of plants. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's an arms race. So plants also have ways to affect the effectors. And they have, um, they have, recept they have uh, what do I have here? Plants produce proteins, specifically receptors to counter effectors that restore PTI and confer additional resistance. So the terminology is a little bit convoluted, but essentially uh, there's receptors, there's things that counter those receptors, and then there's things that counter those counters. And it's a bit complicated. But essentially what we have here is a situation where spider mice, this is on tomato, but uh, it stands, it bears repeat that um, plants have a similar kinds of immune responses, sort of generally speaking, because uh, they have a similar kind of selection pressure. And over time, spider mites and other pests will adapt to uh, certain plants, especially if they're gregarious like these are. Uh, from the report, why do herbivorous mites suppress plant defenses? They say that symbioses with microorganisms or alternatively horizontal gene transfer events from microbes. So sometimes uh, genes move from one organism to another, uh, especially totally uh, distantly related organisms. This does happen. Uh, there are certainly genes in us and other organisms that have uh, benefited from this uh, transfer. Um, may underlie uh, herbivores' ability to overcome plant defenses. So that's, that's critical. The microbiome does not just work for cultivators. The microbiome does not just work for plants. Uh, insects, mites, they also have a microbiome. They also have a genome that is adapted to their environment. And just as certainly as we can produce resistant cultivars and other plants, we can also um, be affected by organisms that are resistant to our defenses. Just something to keep in mind. Uh, in this particular diagram, it's depicting uh, examples where uh, spider mites in particular have adapted to not just so they moved away from suppressing the immune system, because when they suppress the immune system, they actually make the plant more habitable for their uh, close competitors, other plant parasites. So in fact, they have done what's a much more safer, ecologically adaptive um, uh, sort of development is to actually just get really good at mitigating and detoxifying plant defenses like uh, uh, terpenes and uh, proteins and enzymes and things like this. Um, because if they're able to elicit an immune response and prime the immune response of the plant and then just detoxify what they deal with, they actually make the plant way more resistant to their, their parasites. And that's really great for them because it keeps them living longer on the plant. So not something you would consider, it's sort of counterintuitive, but um, generalists generally have this kind of dynamic where they're able to adapt and, uh, and in some cases sort of um, hyper adapt much more rapidly than other organisms.
so the budworm moth, a lot of people know this moth, they know this caterpillar, as I would call it a high threat, high presence pest. The main problem with the uh, budworm moth that people are dealing with is that even if you kill it, similar to the Eurasian hemp borer that we'll talk to, um, you still have a problem, and that problem is a rotting insect corpse in your plant. Um, so that's why the most important thing that people can do, in my mind, that has been most successful, is creating a mesh screen um, defense. Some kind of a barrier if you're growing indoor versus outdoor, this is a lot easier to do, of course, but if you are um, in a field situation and you're dealing with a lot of moths, this might actually be one of the only things that you can do uh, to keep it from being a problem. And it might be a bit of a labor cost, it might be a bit of a, a supply cost, and I know currently we're in a situation where that's a lot more of an ask than it used to be in the past, but if it's between here, this, and total crop loss, that is kind of the decision that you'll have to make. And one of the benefits of this is that if you're able to prevent the moth from um, actually laying eggs on the, on, the, on the plant, then you will pretty much totally obviate that insect from being a problem because the eggs are where the larvae come from. The larvae aren't gonna travel around to find your plant. They rely on the adult for laying uh, eggs on the host. Eurasian hemp borer, I call it a medium presence high threat pest for similar reasons, and that's why I have it right after the Helica verpazia. Um, I have a video here about it, and uh, basically one of the things that you can look for here in this video as a reference is not only what the adults look like, but what the larvae look like. And this is a very small larva. Um, you can see that when the larvae bore into the stems and the branches, they kind of produce a little small brown um, detritus uh, from their boring. Um, and then they swell the branch or the stem where they're residing. Then they travel up the plant. And uh, as they travel up the plant, they girdle the plant from the inside out, which basically totally eviscerates the plant's nutrient movement capability. And so you can, so when that happens, you get uh, um, fungal pathogens that can be vectored uh, in the wounds. You can get all kinds of um, problems from that. And of course you lose the uh, flower material at the terminal end of the bud. So this is a pretty egregious pest. And um, I expect it to get, unfortunately, uh, worse over time because there aren't a whole lot of great ways to deal with it because even the biocontrols that exist, like trichogramma wasps and things like this, um, they only they go after the eggs. And they are not very, you know, these larvae don't stay very long outside of the plant. So they bore into the plant kind of immediately. So the name of the game is prevention um, over treatment. So fungus gnats. Threat medium presence high. A lot of people have dealt with fungus gnats in the past. Um, they are a vector for botrytis, pythium, fusarium, other pathogens. So even though they might not cause a bunch of direct damage, and I do know a lot of people who deal with them kind of occasionally and don't put a lot of um, effort into controlling them, or they certainly just don't deal with a, a, a large presence. Um, that's all well and good. 
but they can cause some other problems to to be that are even way worse and that's vectoring these pathogens so i don't want people to get the idea that because they're kind of a common pest or something that's sort of a low damage pest directly uh, though they don't have some bit of a threat and this only comes from knowing their bionomics and knowing their ecology um, but a lot of insects actually uh, have a an important sort of symbiotic relationship with various microbes. Um, and this is one way that we see this here for cannabis pests. Biocontrols for the fungus gnat include things like Cyanonema felciae, which are predatory nematodes. I've had a lot of great, um, uh, I've had a lot of great success with them in particular. They're like my favorite way to deal with fungus gnats. Um, you can also use things like Bacillus thuringiensis, Israelensis, which is a particular strain um, that is specifically for diptera or uh, flies. And you can also use chemical controls like pyrethrin and azadiractin. However, like other people have said, these might not always be accessible. And in certain cases, you aren't able to use them or they've been mixed with other compounds, like in the case of pyrethrin with um, piperyl butoxide, uh, which is not allowed to be used uh, in various places. So you should always be aware. I know we're talking to an international audience so it really depends on where you are. Uh, no one person is going to know all the various legal changes that occur in cannabis. Oh, so sorry about that. So Western flower thrips, Franklinia occidentalis. This is also a really common pest in many, many, many crops. It's also a vector of several viruses, actually. And uh, I mentioned this last time, but... Uh, it's unclear to me if it's actually a vector for certain mosaic viruses. Certainly, we see examples of, um, uh, and for a long time, I was very dubious about the presence of tobacco mosaic virus, for example, or cucumber mosaic virus in that, um, in cannabis. Uh, there were reports in the past, but they were not really, um, you know, the, the way that we look for viruses nowadays is very different. So I just wanted to see more updated um, information essentially. But uh, it also wouldn't surprise me because uh, Western flower thrips is a massive vector for tobacco mosaic virus and uh, several other orthotospoviruses. So uh, it remains to be seen kind of uh, what this dynamic might be. But um, if this is, if there is a dynamic, I would expect this to be the vector or the one of the primary vectors for it. And as you can see in this picture, um, you can see nymphs and adults, and you can see what their frass or their feces looks like, and their stippling damage all on a leaf. So it was actually a pretty nice picture to use here as a thumbnail. Uh, um, basically, though they are kind of a low threat pest, uh, they're pretty, because of that anyways, or in spite of that, they're uh, pretty easy to deal with with biocontrols and chemical controls. A lot of people like to use things like wettable sulfur or uh, various other botanical insecticides but I like to use Amblystia swirsky or Neocytes cucumerus, uh, which are really common and they go after a lot of other pests as well. And I've mentioned them for several pests already. And uh, Hypoaspis miles or Stradiolalaps schematis is pretty common as well in the soil. So you can, attract the, you can attack the pupae, um, sort of middle stage of the insect when it drops into the substrate, which of course isn't as relevant in a, an aquaponic setting but certainly everyone is getting pests like this as long as they're growing the plants, um, or at the very least, if they're not totally sealed. I know a lot of these aquaponic centers 
and facilities are uh, are sealed from other pathogens and that's a really great thing and when you can do that you should do that because it alleviates a lot of the stressors up front for obvious reasons. Now we get into one of the biggest pests of cannabis 2020-2021 uh, is the rice root aphid, Rufi, uh, Ropalcyphum rufi abdominale. There are a lot of biocontrols for this, but to be honest, um, I found that a use of chemical controls like a pyrethrin product or azadiractin, when in combination with like a fungal pathogen like Bouveria bassiana or Isaria fumosorosia, was highly effective. And um, I made this uh, video uh, to show what they look like in the root zone. Um, their abdomen is a reddish, has like sort of a reddish coloration, no matter what their base color is. Sometimes they're a darker, like black color. Sometimes they're like a yellowish or greenish color, but they always kind of seem to have this red coloration, which is what the roofie means in roofie abdominale in their binomial name. And if we go further into this uh, video, we can see examples of the fungal pathogen being effective. Um, so here you can see somewhat, here, let's see if we have a better one over here. Yeah, so here we have mycosized bodies of, fun of a fungus gnats, of rice root aphids. Rice root aphids are often confused for fungus gnats actually. So it's really important to know the difference because they're a very different threat to model for. Um, but here we see the fungal pathogen being quite efficacious. And um, I want to say anecdotally that I come across a lot of situations where people are, um, at least in commercial settings, uh, very reticent to use these products um, like the fungal pathogen, uh, partly because it can be quite expensive. But uh, particularly at the facility where this footage was taken, um, the fungal path, they would have achieved greater success and at a quicker capacity if they were able to um, kind of get past that and utilize it and utilize it as the rate that was recommended, uh, not just by me, but by other people. Um, because when you hit, when you find these rice root aphids, you have to hit them hard, you have to hit them fast. If you don't, they'll proliferate quite expansively. Uh, Matthew, um, the other gentleman's running slightly slightly late, so if you want to run 10 or 15 minutes long, go for it. Oh, excellent. That does help me. I appreciate that. Um, I think I'm actually running a little bit slow, so that works out. Um, I also wanted to say about the, the rice root aphid that um, uh, they feed on a ton of different plants. The cannabis aphid is a specialist, so in contrast, this will only feed on cannabis as far as we know. And uh, in fact, its closest relative, the hop, uh, damson hop aphid, feeds on hops and uh, 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 some prunus species, kind of like the rice root aphid does. So rice root aphid will feed on grasses in the summer and other kinds of plants and woodier plants in the autumn or fall or autumn or winter period. Um, and they transition between the two um, during, uh, during different seasons. So. Uh, I find that people often have rice root aphids without knowing it, uh, and they're constantly dealing with an infection, with infestation that's being uh, supplied by plants right outside their cultivation space. So again, uh, be aware, so crop scout your location, crop scout the areas inside and outside of your cultivation area, and again, have sort of a holistic idea of what you're dealing with, because 
sometimes the pests are right in front of your space and you're just not looking at them um, sort of uh, with enough detail. And uh, those kinds of things can slip by you or weeds can pop up and uh, supply you with a host of white fly or something like that. So it's something to keep in mind. But uh, cannabis aphids also have similar controls. I also um, heartily recommend uh, fungal pathogens in addition to like a botanical insecticide to knock them down. Uh, but you can also use things like lacewing larvae and aphidious parasitoid wasps. Um, all of these videos show an example of their biology. On the left, we have a parasitoid wasp. Now, parasitoid means that as a typical nature of their um, life cycle, they kill their host. So these wasps will kill the aphids as a part of their life cycle. On the top, we see an aphid producing an alarm or a defense compound out of their cornicles, which are those quote-unquote tailpipes that people like to talk about that aphids have. And um, at the bottom, we have a winged adult, which has a little bit of a different sort of morphology and uh, coloration than the uh, uh, non-winged adults that you see that are reproducing rapidly. Uh, it goes without saying, and I said it so much that I always assume that people know this, but uh, aphids uh, are born pregnant. In fact, they're born as their grandparents already because not only the babies that they're born with are already themselves pregnant. It's a telescoping generations. So as colonies sort of, um, and just like spider mites, they often, they heavily suppress the immune system locally. Um, so as they reproduce rapidly, their, um, their colony starts to really change the immune response of the plant uh, where they're feeding. And that can cause all sorts of problems uh, for the plant when you're trying to uh, utilize um, techniques to prime the immune system or to somehow direct the immune response of the plant when it's already being um, sort of suppressed in a general area. Silverleaf whitefly, uh, I call this a medium threat, medium presence pest because it is the vector of the lettuce chlorosis virus, which we've recently found is a lethal virus in cannabis, doesn't get a lot of attention, but more and more it is. In fact, the gentleman I was looking forward to listening to today, Kevin McKernan, has um, done some uh, work on identifying these viruses and other sorts of pathogens in cannabis. So um, the silverleaf whitefly vector is actually over 460 uh, plant viruses. It's a super vector and LCV is just one of them. And again, we might find that in the future, other viruses are vectored to cannabis but we don't really have that information yet. So that's kind of um, speculative at this point. But they also vector broad mites. And many people have seen this very famous picture of a electron microscope uh, picture of a broad mites that are on the legs of a uh, silverleaf whitefly. And uh, this, is, this is one way that they get around. Uh, certainly to the chagrin of the whitefly, in fact, it's not great for the whitefly itself. It messes with its aerodynamics and other sorts of things, but. Uh, that's what you get. There are various biocontrols and chemical controls. I've been mentioning a lot of the same botanical insecticides, but you can also use things like potable sulfur. Uh, Bouveria bassiana is uh, one of my favorite ways to deal with uh, white fly colonies because they tend to like to aggregate, and that's really conducive to the fungus uh, when you apply it on the colonies. And um, I have a lot of videos on my channel of them dealing with the Bouveria bassiana infestation uh, pretty poorly. 
Um, I think I actually have an example of it here in the video. Uh, no, I do not. But I do have an example of, if you're curious, what those Delphastis lady beetles looked like. Yeah, so they look like this. Uh, these little black lady beetles here and their larvae um, are feeding on the, the white fly colony. So that's what they look like. You can also use cucumeris or Swirskii mites as well. Broad mites, high threat, high presence. These things are in everything. Uh, their genus name literally means uh, polyphagotarsinemus. So many eater tarsinemid. Um, if you're curious, or if you've seen their damage, you know that they have a similar damage to russet mites, the hemp russet mite, and they're often conflated. You can often tell the difference because um, broad mites have sort of an American football shape, this sort of oblong um, look to them, and they lay eggs that have tubercles on them, so little protrusions that to us look like dots. So you can see that in the upper left of this picture here. And you can also see sometimes broad mites carrying females. So it's usually, it's ma males that carry the females around. And um, so if you see the wrinkling corrugated leaves, plus the eggs or plus the mites, then you know you have a broad mite infestation rather than a hemp russet mite infestation. Uh, they produce these problems in the plant by having toxic saliva that uh, fundamentally changes how the plant develops and creates a little shelter for it in the plant foliage. So to get rid of them, uh, I'm a high advocate of sulfur, but I'm also a big advocate for these predatory mites like Swirsky and Cucumeris. And uh, if you have those already established in your crop um, and different contexts are gonna require different application rates and all of that sort of a thing. But um, I oftentimes advocate for like maybe 200 to 300, possibly even 400 mites per square meter uh, of foliage space. That tends to be really effective as um, sort of a preventative um, uh, application and uh, sort of a population that you want to keep um, high, uh, higher up, uh, which is why crop scouting is really important. You have to make sure that those predatory mites are active in your foliage after you apply them. Similar sort of thing is true for the microbes for that matter. Russet mite, again, is also very similar to broad mite, but when you look at it, you can kind of see in this picture um, that, the, that they are vermiform. They are sort of a worm-like uh, shape that kind of tapers at one end. Um, this is because actually they have gone through a lot of, um, they've lost a lot of genes compared to their other mite hosts, or mite, mite friends, um, relatives rather, uh, which has caused them to have this sort of odd very atypical appearance for mites. Uh, but similarly, they can be combated with Swirsky or Cucumerous mites or horticultural oils or wettable sulfur, for example. So those are some common uh, treatments that people utilize in a commercial setting that are also applicable in a residential setting as well. And I also wanted to just touch on this point since I um, happen to know, uh, russet mites, are, uh, they were not ever used by Caltrans to um, you know, get rid of uh, cannabis plants surreptitiously. Uh, and also most russet mites are very, very specialized on one host or a couple of very closely related hosts. And even when they do feed on those plants, they actually typically don't kill them. 
it's um, atypical for, for russet mite species to be uh, very damaging to their host. As a plant parasite, this makes sense. You don't want to actually kill your host. Ideally, you want to just be able to live on it for as long as possible. But unfortunately, citrus bud mite and uh, you know hemp russet mite and tomato russet mite uh, are really problematic, and so we have these pests that we have to deal with. And oftentimes, although they are vectored by us when we move plants around, they're also often vectored by the wind currents. Uh, so that's something that you should consider when you're growing in a field uh, situation. If you feel like, or even an indoor situation for that matter, you feel like you've done everything you can and not let a lot of people in and did all these other sorts of things, um, don't be too distraught. Uh, sometimes they can just literally fly in on the air, <laughs> which is uh, something that I feel a lot of people don't consider. Uh, yeah, so let me go through these really quickly. These are microbial pests. Um, I have several here. And if I don't go over them, uh, you should definitely be um, looking them up on Google or something like this. And I also have a, another chapter that I've written about them. Powdery mildew. You've got uh, lettuce powdery mildew and hop powdery mildew now, recently found and uh, confirmed on cannabis. Uh, there are biocontrols for it, like a, a Ampelomyces quisqualis, which is itself a fungal parasite of powdery mildew. Uh, you can also use potassium bicarbonate or wettable sulfur. And uh, in my last presentation, I went into the, uh, the interactions and how powdery mildew infects plants, but I think I'll skip over it for now. But if you're curious, you should look up uh, this report, this Biotrophia's best report is really fascinating in how powdery mildews become resistant to plant defenses, how they overmatch them, and how plants uh, try to adapt to the parasites range. B. Coolitan virus, major problem. Um, hard to know exactly how bad it's gonna be, but if we look at other crops, we know that uh, BCTV is a, is a major problem in those crops. And globally, it is vectored by the beet leafhopper and it causes lots of damage uh, year to year. And now it's also been found in cannabis. So I expect it to also become a, a major problem in the future. We just don't have enough data to really know. The early symptoms are kind of this weird uh, uh, intervenal mosaicism you sometimes see or, or, or sort of like a blotchiness, but then that kind of terminates and sometimes it only exists on like one or two branches. Uh, it terminates into a very gnarled look as you can see in the picture here. There are also no conventional treatments, unfortunately. This is also true for the alleged chlorosis virus. Uh, there are no conventional treatments for it, it is vectored by the silverleaf whitefly, and its major uh, symptom is, as you can see in the picture, massive chlorosis. So um, again, sort of a pest that you're not, we're not totally sure um, how it's gonna, it's gonna shake out, but with the lack of infrastructural support and research for cannabis pests currently, that's just starting to kind of change. Um, I'm afraid that it might become much more of a problem before we have uh, a decent countermeasure for it. And that's my presentation. Uh, I don't think we have time for questions, but uh, you can always we, contact we, uh, me. We got a, We got a, a couple minutes if you want, uh, if you're up for it. I am up for it. Awesome. Uh, we have some questions from chat. What do you think about the differences between the various strains of Bavaria bassiana? I think we had a similar question last night, but uh, that's from Solshine. Oh yeah, it's a good question too. So um, 
I think that a lot of them are typically very, I don't want to say that they are um, uh, sort of totally equal. They have strengths and weaknesses. I don't keep track of all the different ones, but I'm a big fan of Grasshopper Active or GHA, which is pretty common in various products. And uh, just a quick note, there are really important engineers and technicians that uh, do a lot of work to maintain the virulence of um, uh, biopesticides and microbial biopesticides in general. Uh, just because you produce it on agar or something like that doesn't mean it's going to continue to have virulence. And in fact, we often find virulence traits uh, are lost very rapidly uh, if they're not maintained uh, using um, living hosts and harvesting practices and things like that. So you should watch out, make sure you buy it from a, a distributor who is uh, doing the due diligence to check for that. Awesome. Um, the next question we have is, um, can you ask him about the viability of organic systemics, uh, e.g. rose marinol and similar type products? So for, um, for products that, and I'm going to interpret that question to mean like uh, chemistries that uh, somehow sort of affect the immune system by like priming one or a couple of different pathways. I think that they're really great. Um, the problem that you run into uh, is that when you prime the immune system, uh, that causes changes in the physiology and might restrict growth. There's this concept in ecology called the, the growth defense trade-off, and this doesn't always occur, um, but if you continually prime the plant, like there's a reason why plants don't continually have their immune systems primed 100% all the time. It's costly. And it can also make it difficult for other beneficial microbes and things to um, establish a, a good connection with the plant. Uh, so I think that those substances are good and they, they have a place, but um, it can be kind of hard to know how to correctly dose or um, you don't always know what the ramifications are activating the system. Did someone else ask, um, uh, can you tell us more about saffron fly larva? Uh, we saw a bunch for the first time last year and then saw a whole bunch more this year as well. Can you tell me more about them? Absolutely. Um, they, uh, they often look like hornets or bees. They have like a, oftentimes a yellow-black coloration, but not all of them do. Um, you can often tell the larvae from like caterpillars because they, they're, they don't have like a head capsule. So like caterpillars have like a hard, you know, like a head that kind of looks like a helmet. And uh, fly, these fly larvae do not have that. Uh, not like fungus gnat larvae that do, but syrphid fly larvae do not. And so they kind of taper to a point and that's one way you can tell the difference. The larvae are often green or brown colored, and um, the adults are highly attracted to like populations of aphids, for example, for those species, but also to general florets and um, like mint, mint family flowers and things like that if you want to facilitate them. They love to drink nectar, and sometimes I think they also feed on pollen. What other advice do you have for people that are trying to feed their beneficials as far as feed stations and banker plants? Um, I have a video that goes over some of the pollen that has been investigated for uh, powdery, mil uh, powdery mildew, uh, for predatory mites. And uh, what they found was that 
um, even like different kinds of pollen can be a bit of a crapshoot. Uh, some pollen is highly toxic to predatory mites and, and other insects and mites for that matter, whereas um, other ones are benign and maybe even conferred benefits uh, to the to the predatory mites or other organisms. So um, there's not a lot of research on it, but um, I will say that when it comes to banker plants and things like this and facilitating those uh, those natural um, beneficial ecological agents, uh, try to do as much research as you can, search for ecological research and things that are supported uh, by literature because um, it oftentimes requires like a, a large effort on your on your point to um, to maintain these plants and uh, and sort of assess. You should be assessing whether or not you're actually having an impact, uh, rather than just like scattering a bunch of plants and just assuming that you're going to get this bounty of, of biocontrol when you might not actually have to. You do have to spend some time to cultivate that uh, environment. So um, uh, what other uh, types of pests are you seeing? I know that we, um, this year we saw, and you know, we see this every year in Oklahoma to different extents, um, septoria, and then this year, especially the cucumber beetles. Is there any others that you think people need to be aware of, or at least, you know, put their eyes on it so they can be aware of it if they do need to ID it on their farm? Uh, those two in particular, I can think of off the top of my head. Septoria is a big one, um, pseudomonas, uh, there's a pseudomonas um, species out there that is also affecting cannabis foliage. And uh, it kind of looks like septoria, but it gets like a violet line or halo around the wound site. Um, so that's another one to look out for. Fusarium is a big one uh, that I often see kind of coming, uh, especially on like broken branches and things like that. I often see it colonizes in wound sites and it can be like a bright orange sometimes even, or like a violet coloration. Um, hop latent viroid, of course, is a uh, very in vogue to talk about, a sort of a massive problem. Um, I didn't cover it here because there, there's not a whole lot of like empirical uh, research on it. And um, I, I would rather be conservative in what I'm talking about rather than like be misleading potentially. But uh, that's a massive problem and it's also very hard to identify. So a lot of times the answer is, you know, get it tested. If it really matters, um, get it tested and uh, uh, try to be preventative rather than curative because it's not very conventionally cur curative, curable. Um, uh, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, phytoplasmids? A lot of people uh are just starting to find out about those. Uh, you do have a great video on it actually on your channel. Absolutely. So uh, phytoplasmas are kind of a relatively new plant parasite, mostly discovered in the 1960s, uh, late 1960s. And they are a special bacteria that lives oftentimes in the phloem of plants and causes a lot of problems. It was recently found in citrus for the Huanglong being or citrus greening disease that it's actually not a parasite at all. It just causes a, a massive like oxidative stress and hormonal imbalance in the plant. And if you, uh, if you rectify those uh, imbalances that it causes, then all, all of the symptoms or most of the symptoms of the colonization go away, which is massive because this thing was killing 
tons of citrus plants all over citricultural spaces like Florida and California. Um, in cannabis, there are phytoplasmas as well. And I'm just curious to know if perhaps we could use the same techniques that we use for citrus that we're finding out are applicable there in cannabis, but we don't have a lot of information. Phytoplasmas are mainly found, uh, rather they're found all, all around the world. And there's examples of it in Iran, in China, uh, various parts of the United States of America, like Nevada. Um, and they're oftentimes vectored by a special subgroup of leafhopper. And we don't really know which ones are vectoring it for cannabis. We just don't have that information. Um, but uh, we will probably find that out, hopefully in the next few years. Awesome. Is there any good um, resources uh, for people that are trying to get uh, uh, some of the answers as far as testing? I know uh, you do consulting. Uh, they can do that through you. Is there any other resources that you wanted to give people? Uh, I know AgDia and Medicinal Genomics also have um, uh, kits that you can sound out for for individual stuff. Um, is there any other uh, good resources that people might want to be made aware of? Um. Well, uh, for those who aren't familiar with uh, Joseph Ramahi, he is a specialist that I have worked with in the past that um, comes highly rated from me. And uh, uh, he has a, a good little primer that he has been um, sharing. In fact, if you follow his Instagram, which I think is uh, Joe S. Ramahi or something like this, um, uh, he was actually circulating that recently on social media too, for Hoplite and Viroid in particular. Um, so check him out. And uh, obviously, since I am taking up uh, Mr. McKernan's space, I, I want to also reiterate that uh, he is a great resource for this kind of research. And I'm really excited because when I first started talking about various viruses, I don't know if this is true or not, but from what I could have told, uh, what I could see, he was really the only other person who I knew who was talking about it as well. So um, shout out to him. Oh, uh, you're muted. Oh, sorry about that. No Here problem. I'm talking myself. Um, uh, I, I, actually, that reminds me of one topic that we did bring up last night that I wanted to make sure we mentioned uh, again here uh, about hop latent viroid, as you uh, had some very interesting thoughts on that study that was published that was making some pretty uh, interesting claims about the percentage of hop latent viroid infection. Oh, yeah. Um it's 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 egregious i think you're talking about the uh the article that was talking about like 90 percent of the sampled plants that they that they had found uh were infected with hop latent viroid it's egregious um and with the lack of like political and infrastructural support for cannabis research um and also the very healthy sort of um uh, reticence that the cannabis uh, cultivation space has for like maybe uh, government interference or uh, sort of um, even like large-scale organizations uh, being uh, helpers uh, and I understand where that resistance comes from um, you know it's very it's going to be a very interesting dance between people who are trying to cultivate plants and people who are trying to um, uh, research this pathogen and find biosecurity controls that will that will make sense for both parties um i'm afraid that 
it will get worse before it gets better and it's already very bad and i think we were speculating earlier that at least in aquaponics setting maybe hop latent viroid can transmit through water uh because it can be mechanically transmitted but um i don't actually know but it'd be interesting to see that uh, looked at yeah i, I it, we've definitely had a suspicion about um lettuce chlorosis virus potentially being vectored uh, via mm -hmm. water because of some interesting um uh results we've had with lettuce facilities that were also growing hemp strains um, but with hemp you have a little bit different genetics as well which has its own issues when it's often uh, outdoor and open pollinated so that invites it to certain other things that could have also been the factor again that's something that we suspect but don't have confirmation yet mm -hmm. yeah it'll be very interesting to see this research pan out in the next half decade to a decade all right um how can people find out about you and your various resources? Because you have all kinds of great ways for people to, to reach out to you. Yeah, so um, I remember you were you were showing examples of my, uh, my website. So if you want to reach out to me for professional uh, consultation, you can come across xenthanol.com and message me there. Uh, you can also message me on my social media. Uh, I'm... I'm always looking to help people as much as possible. And at this point, I've probably helped thousands of people if it's not tooting my own horn too much to say. Uh, in fact, a lot of the really great videos that you saw in this presentation came from people who wanted to support uh, the free sharing of that pest information, which I know is very sensitive to a lot of people. And so um, I wanna take a moment to say that I really appreciate this honestly surreal experience to be able to help as many people as possible. You can also find that information and more information on my YouTube channel, Xenthanol, especially my pest primer series, and also on Instagram and Twitter, which is at SyncAngel, which you can see on the left and right side of the presentation slide. Awesome. And um, I'll I just queued, you teed yourself up for something and then I forgot it. Um, oh, I hate when that happens. That's all right. Um, definitely check out uh, his awesome information. Oh, I remember uh, Matthew's very passionate about this stuff too. He actually, uh, along with myself, gave a talk for the Aquaponics Association of China uh, to yes. try and help get some interesting information to them because they are very much cut off uh, from the rest of the world when it comes to agricultural knowledge. Uh, they don't exchange information quite as much in the ag, ag realm. So it was really cool to, to speak to them and hear about some of the concerns that they had. Uh, about aquaponics and, and some of the different things that they run into. So that was definitely an interesting experience as well. Yeah, I really, I really appreciated being a part of that as well. It was very uh, sort of refreshing to be able to shuo some Zhongwen uh, for once. Right. And if you guys want to find inf more information about uh, 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 the Aquaponics Association, you can find out uh, through about them through the aquaponicsassociation.org. Uh, for the U.S. chapter, uh, and then there's chapters in Europe and, and Asia as well. So, uh, and even one in Africa now, so you can find out the one closest to you. Uh, well, thank you so much, Matthew, for joining us today, and I uh, really enjoyed your talk. Again, uh, sorry about the, the issues with the recordings yesterday, but I very much appreciate you uh, stepping up and helping us out again today. I really appreciate the, uh, the second chance, and I hope that you were able to recover it, but if not, we have this presentation. And uh, I look forward to our mutual success.